Welcome to the Euro Intelligence Podcast. I'm Wolfgang Munschau and with me are Susanne Munschenk and Jack Smith. Today we would like to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act. Jack, can you explain to us what is the Inflation Reduction Act and why is this a problem for us Europeans? Uh, yeah, so I, I mean, the first thing is that the Inflation Reduction Act kind of doesn't really do what it says on the tin. It's called that because they needed a nice name and they needed to convince Joe Manchin to pass it. The Inflation Reduction Act really is a very large, basically omnibus tax and spending bill uh, in the US. It has several different components, but the biggest one and the one that is worrying the Europeans the most is over basically the energy transition, the green transition, and the kinds of industries that will be needed in the US to help that move forward. It contains, and I'm just going to make sure that I have the figures correct here, a kind of total subsidy package of about 369 billion US dollars to support the development of renewable energy related industry in the US. That is obviously a very large amount of subsidies. And that is really the core of the problem that the European Union has with it, is the fact that, you know, through through these various different industries and, you know, in, ter in terms of the kind of supply chains associated with those industries, basically the amount of money that the Americans are putting into it will kind of like squeeze everybody else out. That's a that's a big problem for us Europeans. Susanna, you've written about the Franco-German response to this. Now, that traditionally, the biggest, most successful example of Franco-German cooperation is Airbus, which was also set up in competition to an American uh, predominance of, of a market. Uh, will they be able to pull off something similar this time? Robert Habeck went to Paris. Actually, he took himself time with Emmanuel Macron, but also meetings on the ministerial level and other decision makers. So his take is different. The way he phrases it is it's not the overall amount of the Inflation Reduction Act, but it is the way how it could actually structurally disadvantage in a way because it attracts companies to relocate to the US and then deprive Europeans of these innovative industries. That is for him the more worrying part of it. Our approval Procedures are too slow and too cumbersome, and we can't actually compete on that level with the US. The subsidies, I think we we talked about it earlier, it's, it's, it's a temporary thing. It might actually go away. But when, what might not go away is once they relocate to the US, they're not going to relocate to, to Europe back. No, no, you build yeah. up an initial advantage. And then, I mean, we saw that with, um, for instance, solar photovoltaic, where... Um, you know, the industry, a lot of the industry kind of moved out of Europe over to China and it hasn't come back since. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a really, it, it is a problem. I mean, so in that sense, the problem is still kind of the subsidies, but more the fact that they give the US almost a kind of first mover advantage of when these exactly. companies go over, they don't come back. I, I mean, it is a fair point to raise about the approvals process. It takes, in many instances, too long for renewable energy firms to get approvals for their projects. That's been something that the EU Commission has been trying to work on, but it's ended up kind of getting snarled up with everything else that's going on with energy. Basically, it's also the question of national uh, Yeah, it's the question I mean, of national competences. And that's where, and it's the question of like how you work with local and regional governments. That's where the Franco-German uh, initiative comes in, <clears throat> because 
I mean, we know they had a, a bit of a rough stitch um, a couple of months ago, but now it seems this is kind of the letters to do actually something new on uh, industrial policies where there is at least a common understanding, also common reading in, in Berlin that something has to be done and it cannot be done alone. The Germans, I think they seem to be realized that they can't stem it all by themselves. And one of the proposals that is the most concrete, I would say, is um, that they want to do uh, common purchases of gas. So that's something that, that came out of these two days meetings. They got three working groups uh, going on the fields. They want to have more cooperation with, which is energy, health and uh, what else? And in- infrastructure, I think. Infrastructure, yes. These are the three fields where they want to intensify their collaborations on industrial policy. And uh, the other initiatives to do on something on hydrogen, to do something on innovations. How successful that will be, that's another question. As you said, I have our experiences with Airbus. We have our experiences with... Uh, failed projects like the Euro drones. and uh, we, we also had the Eurofighter project, which was just, I mean, a nightmare. We know that it's not only the procedure of approval, but it's also actually to make collaborative industrial projects work in a, with all this overstructured decision-making process that takes long to work itself through because it has to go through a political approval rating and an industrial pro- approval and that all takes long, as we've seen. And the Future Combat Air System, it's a project that goes back to Angela Merkel when she first met Emmanuel Macron. So they thought it's a great idea to come up with this joint project, put it out there. But it d- didn't sit well with the industries. The industries were not where they needed to be in order to make that work. Yeah, so the, the, the big problem with the FCAS, for those who are not aware on the, listening to the podcast, is uh, basically an industrial dispute between Dasso and Airbus um, over you know, kind of who has responsibility for what and particularly who is sharing information and what kind of information they're sharing. But that's why this, only, it, it, this example sort of demonstrates that a lot of these projects have been white elephants. Airbus was tremendously successful. Yeah, Airbus because, was because, because, yeah. because Because it addressed a particular threat and it, it was a strategic response to the uh, strip, but it was a long-term response. Now, what the Inflation Reduction Act is a short-term crisis because it means that if, if companies leave, leave Europe now, as we said, they'll not come back. It seems odd that you would address a short-term threat with a long-term strategic plan if the, if the focus should be really on shifting the parameters of European competition policy, allowing us to subsidize, create a recovery fund instrument maybe, to shift resources from one country to another in order to to actually com- to actually allow some competition. This is the kind of thing you would the big need. energy fund or something like that. Yeah, something I mean, uh, the US they recommended. I mean, they, uh, Joe Biden. Uh, I think in Bali they they tried to convince him to sort of downgrade a little bit the Inflation Reduction Act, but there was really no no without prevail. I mean, I agree with you. It's a short term. It's a short term act. The U.S. subsidizing its industries. The U.S. recommended the Europeans, well, why don't you do the same as we do? Yeah. So you subsidize and we subsidize and everyone is happy. But this is not flying with the Germans. And I don't know for the French, but definitely not with the Germans. Because you, know, get, you, know, uh, the, you suspend the stability pact, suspend competition policy. Yeah, yes. also, also <laughs> obviously, when you start to do the, around the subsidies, there are going to be lots of conversations about fiscal transfers. Um, you know, another notable feature of the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. is how widely it spreads around a lot of this money, right? 
So um, and uh, I think I mean Harbert was saying uh, he for, from his point of view the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act is actually a violation of um, WTO. Uh, of course work. it is. So and, uh, do we want to go down this road or do we want to define our own kind of ways and responses? And that's why you end up in this area where it looks like a long-term response, but actually probably there is it's like this pivotal moment. Do you want to engage in this? Uh, tit for tat uh, yes, trade yeah. war, or do you want to set uh, to to actually re rearrange, saying, well, we really definitely want to do uh, do do it differently. The only thing I will say about this is that if you if you kind of end up being the only people in the world following the WTO rules to like the last decimal point, it's not really a World Trade Organization anymore, is it? <laughs> I think the funny thing about the Inflation Reduction Act is not only that that it's been sort of the name has been used to sell it, but You know the the very idea that you spend lots of government stimulus subsidies to reduce inflation is 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 absolutely absurd. Given that the inflation is the result of government subsidies and government, there, there is kind of a roundabout way in which they've justified um, this. But you know. yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sure I'm sure there is. Just as a final thought on the subject is, uh, I was I was thinking that you know I think the Brexiters in the UK missed the trick here because you know they've been struggling for a model. This would have been actually quite cheap to rattle the EU and get businesses over. They didn't think of this. State would, aid actually did come up in the whole conversation around Brexit. There was quite a lot it of It was, that. it was. But ultimately, the EU didn't get anywhere on this because it, it prioritized fishing in the last, in the last instances of the, of the negotiations. And the, Brit the British did not have to follow the EU's state aid Uh, rules and there's you know, nothing that could have stopped the EU, uh, the UK, from doing what the what the US did, but they didn't. They are now prioritizing austerity in the UK, so uh, so the EU need not fear. <laughs> Although, admit, admittedly, if I were to enter a global subsidy war, I would probably not want to be by far the smallest player in that global subsidy war, which is what the UK would be. The UK would, have, I think, it would have been actually quite effective because the UK would have not. It wouldn't have been a global subsidy war, but the UK would have been able to attract some businesses, which, you know, from a both political and economic point of view, it would it probably would have not been a bad thing to to show the benefits of independence that you can use regulation to actually create new businesses, which they haven't. So far, it's basically just less trade. Less of everything, rather than anything, you know, there isn't anything new, newly created by that. And that was what Brexit should have done had, had they pursued it as a business model, which they didn't. So, so No, no, that, that clearly wasn't what they were thinking about when they no. did it. And so we're in the situation we're in now. We're in now, yeah. Shall we move on to Turkey? Turkey, exactly. We, we were amazed to read about Turkish, as you wrote about um, uh, Erdogan's economic policy. I'm, I'm amazed that, that this works. I would have thought that every... Rule of economics it seems not to apply to Turkey, and this seems to have something to do with the man himself. Uh, can you explain to to us? I mean, Erdogan has the view that by reducing interest rates, he can reduce inflation. Now, that would be news if that was told to the European Central Bank uh, or the Federal Reserve. But it seems, how does it work, and what is the what what what's behind this? Uh, I think he doesn't see it's a causal. I think for him, these are two different things. Uh, for him, inflation is a temporary phenomenon and uh, he expects inflation and the burden of inflation, as he calls it, to be over by next year. Yeah? So for him, that's different. But team transitory. Tran team transitory, yes. <laughs> team transitory is a relief pitcher. Yeah. He had uh, launched this huge investment program decades ago, pushing investment beyond the possible. This investment boom, construction boom, We're in a very short time period, huge airports, uh, big roads, tunnels, 
bridges have been built, like really in record time. So he loves bridges. He loves bridges. And he also built a lot of housing. Uh, so all this leveled up the, 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 the price level as well. And then, of course, we had the imported inflation. They're, they're running a current account deficit, quite a, a significant one. And energy is, of course, one of the components. So uh, for him, a big part of this inflation problem comes from imports uh, that he has to cover. So that's one part of it. The other part is in interest rates. And here I think it's worth to understand that Coming from Islam, interest rates is like the Aristotle saying uh, money doesn't bear children. For him, this is his conviction. He officially declared interest rates his enemy. For him, it's detrimental to growth. His logical conclusion was then saying we have to go to interest rates that are single digit rather than double digit in order to grow. And, uh, so he doesn't have an inflation target, he has an interest rate target. He has an interest rate right, target. And actually, yesterday he fulfilled it by uh, our central bank. So he had to change two central bank governors in order to get one that actually implements his politics, who then slashed the uh, interest rates three times since August this year to now a single digit, which is 9%. We do now expect that this will stay for a while. Uh, he, he sort of delivered on the promise and the appetite to go even further might be reduced. I think it's also worth just um, winding back a little bit how Turkey got to this point, especially in terms of their economic model. So really, and, and this was in the early part of Erdogan's time in power in Turkey, Turkey was a big beneficiary of that kind of globalization wave, what Mervyn King called the nice era, you know, non-inflationary consistent expansion. Their, their kind of economic model was this export-oriented manufacturing economy They did very, very well out of it. So you had these kind of big infrastructure projects. You had the growth of kind of industrial capacity in Turkey. It really was at that point an economic success story. And Erdogan built a lot of his early political popularity off of what was seen at that point as that strong economic management, especially coming off an economic crisis that had enveloped Turkey in the late 1990s and early 2000s. What has happened since, I think, is partly a result of that strategy simply running out of road and partly a result of the changes to the global economy that have occurred in the last decade. And then also partly a result of the uh, unorthodox way in which Erdogan has responded to it. And this, this kind of process has been at least like a decade or so in the making. In terms of whether this is actually working or not, I mean, I think it would be more accurate to say that it's not not working than that it's working. Inflation is incredibly high in Turkey at the moment. They've had to do, the central bank and the government have had to do a lot of work to stop the lira from continuing to tumble. What did they do? They did um, swaps. Swaps. Apparently, central banks like Qatar, like South Korea, United Arab Emirates, they all came Qatar forward. Qatar and Saudi Arabia. But Saudi Arabia has a different arrangement with them. They just opened a credit line with them for two billion, so which is like massive. Um, I mean, Turkey has been shopping around for quite some time now, and they they try to build new alliances, even with Israel. They do new, new deals. Erdogan knows how to play multitude of different games at the same time. The question is, will he be able to maintain this long enough until next year's elections in June? Because that's sort of the critical time. If, if he can do that and win these elections, it will manifest his power and also will be seen as a sort of confirmation that it works. 
And I think this probably has a self-reinforcing effect on his economics and will help him to attract further money in, into Turkey. Yeah. Swaps are a very smart instrument. I mean, we've, we've actually learned about them during the global financial crisis when we started, you know, the, when the West started using them. They hadn't been used previously. This is a fairly sort of a new, they have been used, but not to this extent that they're now being used. They're kind of becoming a mainstream stabilization instrument. And for short periods of time, they can be quite successful. Mm. And he only needs to bridge you said seven months. Yeah. And at seven months is probably a good good time horizon. And afterwards, he has a whole you know parliamentary turn on himself to be a champion of whatever policy he wants to be a champion of then. And so that mm-hmm. seems it seems it seems smart. But what is the political quid pro quo? I mean, if you do a swap with, you know, various various uh, players who have their own agendas. So Qatar and UAE and Saudi Arabia. The, the three countries that don't really, you know, yes. th- that are doing a lot of fighting among each other at the moment. So you, you would have to be um, you know, yeah. Israel. <laughs> yeah, but Israel are actually uh, fine with everybody now. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's really there's a shift. And I think one of the big roles is definitely from energy and energy projects. Uh, I think the realization that... Uh, in order to get anything done, you need some. You, you need to build alliances with others across the region. Um, so, definitely, there's a lot of power shifting happening there. And yeah, Saudi Arabia. That was kind of interesting. Uh, he sort of got um, back on track and, and having good relationship with Saudi Arabia. We do have uh, competition. I mean, Saudi Arabia with Iran. We have uh, Turkey. Maybe it's the opposition to. Iran. We don't know. I mean, what is interesting for me, for my for my understanding, is that economics is becomes a foreign policy tool in a sense that he had to call favors for other from others, also from Russia, from China. I mean, China is a big investor in Turkey. Uh, now Russia come, becomes even also a big investor. Lots of Russians came to Turkey. They have now a deal, an economic deal, to build an energy hub. Russia is to build two new nuclear power stations. Okay, the U.S. could still come in and uh, threaten secondary sanctions. So this is not a done deal yet, but he can play around a little bit and teasing also the West a bit like, I'm not dependent on you. I can do my own my own reality. And that's actually what it is about. He's just fighting this battle and for economic independence. He wants to show the world that the Turkey can deliver his own kind of thing, and it doesn't do have to do a carbon copy of uh, Western capitalism and follow the dictate of the markets. For him, that would be a big victory if he could. Carry if he can, if he can, if he can. I, I mean, the, the one one of the things that just always astounds me about this is like this entire thing is absolutely crazy, right? The economics, the foreign policy adventurism, the playing off all these people with their contradictory objectives, trying to kind of square up against Iran. But also having to square that off with being friends with. Well, Qatar. if we tried this, we would probably not succeed. That's for no, sure. no, no. You, you have, have to be. Skills. You have to be an incredibly skilled operator to like. <laughs> um, I mean, I, again, I wouldn't say make this succeed, but avoid everything falling apart around you. Uh, frankly, it is astounding that what looks really from the outside like an, a huge mess still is kind of staying together. But I, I don't know whether Erdogan will keep being able to do that in the future. We as Western observers, we find this uh, is outside our remit of uh, experience and understanding. And yet that's what, what makes it also so interesting to see whether this yeah. uh, model could work uh, for him. And I think that's also why Russia and China are sitting at the fences and having a lot. Could, could we have this new alliance, this uh, alternative to the Western thing? That the chaos model. The chaos yeah. model, yeah. yeah. Every, keeping different narratives um, in parallel. I mean, we see this also on the military front, uh, the way how, this, how he's now going after the Kurds in, in Syria. 
which uh, throws up huge problems for for the US uh, because they are the allies of the, the Kurds in Syria. One of the drone attacks on the headquarters nearly uh, was like 150 meters away from where the US troops are. So it also throws uh, in a curveball uh, to the question of uh, can Sweden do enough for its accession process for NATO? Because one of the deals was that it's supposed to help Turkey fight terrorists, but the definition of terrorism is move, if it is a moving target. And if we enter that game, what are we entering? On what terms are we entering? And where do we say this is the red line? Uh, we still don't know. Uh, I mean, he pulled this off saying, well, we have now this uh, bombing attack in Istanbul. Now this is retaliation for it. Does he plan a military operation? At, I mean, his military is ready to um, push to more push into more, northeastern Syria. But yeah. um, it's more of a threat than he actually would have interest to do it. And, and also, what does it mean for his mediation role towards Russia, whether Ukraine and the West, if he's focusing too much on the Kurdish question? So I think there's a lot of interest he has to juggle and think, find his role, uh, not pushing too strong in one direction or the other, keeping an equal distance to all of them, yet teasing a little bit in all directions, uh, so to maximize his leverage. Right. It's endlessly fascinating. I also look at the uh, you know various Western economists who've been making all these predictions about how it all ended in tears, and you know by now Turkish the Turkish lira should have been devalued now by a lot more than it is. So it, it is a defying um, you know a, an expectations defying uh, policy. It might it might still end up that way, but it's I think a lot of linear extrapolations that we are making about you know global finance probably also based on our experience with emerging market crises asian crises and other episodes where countries quickly uh, lost it that doesn't seem to apply anymore yeah oh, mind you sorry sorry um i mean obviously it's a different kind of emerging market crisis because of i mean the first thing is that turkey is a very big emerging market and the second thing is that um it's in a strategic position so you know, th there's obviously a political angle yeah. to what's going on and being able to kind of play Turkey's geopolitically strategic position to his advantage has been, I think, a, a reason that would be very difficult to take into account by most economists. So yeah. that, I mean, we, that's, we, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, they're having, their drones are having a huge success worldwide and uh, I think they can't. The, drone, the drones, the drones are, are... The ability uh, also uh, to block the NATO accession of... Yeah, but, but also, I mean, in terms of production, mm. it's really the manufacturing in the in the Middle East. It's one of the manufacturing countries in the Middle East, uh, known for its exports, and also a good competitor to to China's a bit more expensive than China's products. And if you mm -hmm. just compare, for example, solar panels, yeah. uh, if you do the the ones in, uh, from Turkey, they are more expensive than the ones from from China. Yet uh, yeah. the quality is also there, and the, the service is there, and you could actually argue that it's a huge market for them to explore in the Middle East. Oh, no, it's literally the only major value-added manufacturing exporter in the Middle yeah. East. Yeah. So um, the other and, thing is to say, we talked about the inflow of foreign investments, but there's also, the central banks also use private domestic resources. So they called in all the foreign reserves from uh, companies and, and private uh, individuals, and they raised $2 billion for, like that by promising that they would take care of the foreign exchange losses. So basically locking in higher exchange rate uh, for individuals and, and taking the risk of this exchange rate devaluation onto the state budget. 
very difficult to continue to do sustainably if you don't want to risk capital flight. But you know, and also there's a limit to how many. There, there, there is there, there is a limit, a limit to how much FX you can just yes. produce by shaking up people. Yeah, you know, yeah. Right? So I think there's a limit, a natural limit to that, and also there's a natural limit of um, we saw the public debt rising from very low levels now to 40% of GDP, which is like a, it's a, it's a big shift. Uh, so we we see how 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 that this will go. Uh, the question is not really whether it's sustainable. I, I think I agree. It's not. The question is whether it's sustainable for seven months. Yeah, <laughs> that's a totally yeah, different yeah, question. Yeah. That's a really different question. And for uh, me, that's the crucial, that's yeah. a pivotal point. And beyond that, I think we, uh, credibility plays such an important role for them uh, to pull all the money in. We see it with uh, Dubai as a financial center where credibility and a sort of a cluster effect can really attract a lot of investments. And the companies, to be fair also, there's if you have a reputation of good companies, of good infrastructure, you will pull in some foreign foreign investors if you can demonstrate that your um, that your environment is stable enough yeah another thing as well for him politically is that next year coming up is the um, 100th anniversary of the founding of the turkish republic yeah. right so i think there there's a kind of extra component there where depending on how this turns out over the next several months whether he manages to continue to keep the show on the road or whether it kind of all starts collapsing around him it, regardless of which way it goes, the result will kind of be magnified by that because there will be a lot going on. Obviously, a, a lot of kind of narratives forming about, well, the last hundred years of Turkish history and where really the next hundred years of Turkish history go. Um, Erdogan has had, is also on a real mission to fundamentally change in many respects the nature of the republic that Mustafa Kemal Ataturk founded. And it will also be interesting to see how he plays with that idea, the kind of idea, because that kind of balance of continuity with the Ataturk system versus wanting to change it to fit his own religious and political beliefs more has been a kind of, you know, feature of his time in power. So for me personally, it will be very interesting to see how he carries that on through next year. Well, the economic part of it is, is part of this myth building. It's about myth building. Can he replace the myth of Ataturk? And can he create his own myth, uh, which is then defining and uh, setting the Republic on a new footing? Okay, well, on that note, I think we'll, we'll call it a day. Thank you for listening. Until next time.